to fear, where terror is homegrown. Join us as we take a drive down dusty back roads and discover the obscure and dark history of this country, human and otherwise, that lurk in your backyard. Hey guys, welcome on back to State of Fear Podcast. Uh, I am Chris, and as always with me is my good friend, my good buddy, my co-host, James. What's up, everybody? Hey guys, uh, today uh, is Delaware, the great state of Delaware. Um, the state that, if anybody from my time remembers, is the state that Wayne and Garth could not figure out what the fuck happens in Delaware. <laughs> so if anybody remembers that skit, they were doing like California and Texas, and they had you know things for that, but then when they got to Delaware, they were just like... I got nothing. We're in Delaware. Yep. Yeah, so that's... But, <laughs> but, Delaware has more going on than people think. Yes, they um, do. So today's topic is on Delaware's first and only serial killer, Stephen Pinnell, a.k.a. the Corridor Killer. Damn. And like I said, that is a small state anyway. Yes. I think it's second smallest next to Rhode Island. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, yeah it's not much to it. Uh-uh. So, uh, but before we get started on that, um, of course, we're going to have weird news of the day. Uh, also, don't forget to stick around at the end. We're going to have an a, a personal audio experience from one of our listeners. So, be sure to tune in for that. Absolutely. But right now, uh, James, uh, what is your, do you have any knowledge or any interest in serial killers at all? Not really, Chris. No? no? <laughs> Are you not a true crime fan? Well, I really didn't follow it much. It never really intrigued me. Uh, you've heard the the main stories like the Gacy's and the Dahmers and those guys. They all made the news. Right. He's like, oh, well, big deals. Commercialized, blah, blah, blah. But I don't want to make light of it either. But it, like I said, it was not something I followed. But as we have studied, started studying these things, yeah. looking into these strange stories and things like that and weirdness in other states, I have started to, uh, my interest is starting to peak on things of this nature because, you know, when you start digging, you start finding out a lot of really nasty stuff about this country. And this is uh, this is real life horror. So have, yes. ha- have you, I mean, it's only, you know, like... How many episodes in at this point? Like eight or nine or something like that. Have you found this to be scarier than the other stuff that we cover? Or is the other stuff still scarier to you in your mind? The serial killer stuff? Yeah. The mass murder More like killer. it makes me mad. You know, okay. people who just go around and indiscriminately killing lots of people just because they can get away with it for a certain amount of time yeah. before they eventually screw up. It just, it just makes me mad that... People out there, I mean, I know there's people out there like that. I oh, yeah. get it. Oh, yeah. But it's just always infuriated me that they go out there and indiscriminately just kill people, yeah. turn people's lives upside down, mm-hmm. and then when they get caught, they laugh, no remorse. I, that's, uh, yeah. And unfortunately, ha- half of them aren't put to death in manners which I feel are necessary. Because I, I remember when we talked about uh, Ronald Gene Simmons. Yes. Uh, back uh, from Arkansas. Arkansas. Um, I have no, no sympathy whatsoever for these people when right. they're caught, and I wish they would 
unfortunately, yes, I'm going to say it, die in a painful or like manner to their victims. You know, but... uh, Now, I will say that, um, (laughs) yes, for the vast majority of them, they are uh, psychopaths, sociopaths, uh, have no remorse or no... um, no uh, qualms about killing. There, there's been a few exceptions. Uh, there was a, I don't remember the guy's name, but they, there was a serial killer that was actually known as the Weepy Voice Killer, hmm. who would kill someone and then call 911 crying and begged them to stop him because he could not stop himself. And there are audio calls out there, uh, 911 calls of him uh, calling and crying. He was very remorseful what he did, but he couldn't stop himself. Now, I always wonder if people like this are possessed somehow, or they're just off their rocker, or... it's uh, you know. I, I think it's just a whole uh, misfiring and miswiring of, of chemical and and uh, just electrical things going on so. their head. And just, they have a compulsion. They just can't stop, you know, even, even when they want to. They just can't well, do it. Well, it's like I said, because, yeah, when I talk about my myself it's weird because uh just a little fact about myself mm-hmm. i wouldn't hurt a fly unless i didn't have to right but then when i think about it like i say if somebody hurt my family or something like that uh-huh and when i think about what i would do and how nuts i would get and the things i would do to them to pay them back it's quite savage actually so yeah. the ca- capacity inside one's mind to just flip a lid and just go berserk is, you know, it's always there. The potential's there for anybody to probably do that. I know it sounds crazy, but it, you know, it's just I, a, it's you know, a different way of thinking. Yeah, and you know, and some of these people, I guess, just can't distinguish. Well, or for just the, for them, like for you, that your motivation is that exactly is is taking care of your family, is having revenge on on people who hurt your family. But like for you know, mass murderers, serial killers, it's their motivation to them is their motivation is just as justified as yours is to you yeah because of how they're wired or how their uh their their mind thinks well you know you got like sick bastards like gacy you know who would kill after doing foul deeds and acts and things like that he just had no you know he was just a filthy dirty low down human being right you know yeah. stuff like that yeah uh and some people i guess just don't have they've got that weird wiring thing i so. guess so yep. so i take it then you don't uh really have a favorite serial killer that that you've uh, learned of in in the past or you've read on in the past uh no like no? i said the only i guess you wouldn't even call him a serial killer is more of a spree killer like you said is a guy i discussed in a previous episode alfred packer I guess he's the only, you know, when I was growing up, he was the only one I really knew of. And then I heard about some other people. I've heard of Jonestown, but that was more of a mass suicide. But when you brainwash people and you lead them to death and stuff like that, I guess you could cut, you, I would call it murder. Oh, that's, that's definitely you know? murder on, on, a, on a massive scale. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, was it the Manson types, you know, stuff like that, you know, but uh, am yeah. I... I, but I never really, I guess you could say, I, you know, I never did study it yeah. or look into it. I just didn't find any interest in it, I guess. I, it's it's hard to explain why. It's more like I don't want to know about the evils that some people do. Gotcha. You know, I just, I guess, you know, not, not hiding my head in the sand. It's just something I'm not going to go look for because it bothers me so much. Okay. Know? So why am okay. I going to intentionally piss myself off? reading about something that I can't control or do anything about. You know what I mean? 
Well, it's just I, weird. I get that. I get that. And I think that's the vast majority of people are like that. Um, but then there are another majority of people like myself who are just fascinated with this stuff. And I think we're fascinated by the idea that people have this mentality that, that they can go and do these things. But then also also the idea that, you know, serial killers, you know, I mean, if anybody's seen the uh, the show Mindhunters, you know, they, they, the FBI started a whole unit around these guys because they didn't think like normal killers. Normal killers have, or I guess you want to call them normal, but other prior to this, other killers had like certain motivations, you know, yeah. act of passion or revenge, you know, but these, these individuals didn't have those patterns and didn't fit those motives. And so they had to hold, they had to uh, create a whole new school of thought for these people in order to catch them. And I think that's what fascinates most of us is that, you know, the, these people all have, like, you know, you've got your Ted Bundy, who was, you know, a, a charming individual who was able to con multiple women into, you know, helping him and then, and then kill them. And then you've yeah. got people like Dahmer, who was not charming, who was kind of socially awkward, but he was able to, you know, lure enough young boys into his house to kill and eat them. And then you've got people like, you know, Wayne, John Wayne Gacy, who used his position as a, a construction foreman to hire young boys and then to get them in his house with promises of like booze and party and stuff. And then, yep. you know, and so more or less every serial killer has their own distinct personality and different style. And I think that's what fascinates many of us is that they're very unique. Yeah. And so, you know, but a lot of them have a lot of commonalities as far as like early childhood or how they were raised or triggers that caused them to, to become the way they are. But then when they when they when they find their I guess you would call it their niche like even BTK BTK had his own different niche you know he did he, he didn't have a particular type of, of uh, victim he, he it ranged from young to old just indiscriminate yeah and and he he was you know uh, um of the mindset enough to stop for a good period after he you know after I guess he got married or whatever and and then. You know, he only got caught. He wouldn't have gotten caught if he hadn't been so damn arrogant and sent the FBI uh, a letter twenty years, twenty years after <laughs> yeah. his last kill, daring him to do something. Yeah. yeah, after his last kill, he sent them a he sent them a damn letter on a floppy disk, and then they chased it back to his to the computer he used at the church where he was a deacon. Stupid. And he got caught. Otherwise, he wouldn't have got caught. You know. Yeah. And as far as I, you know, I know there are other serial killers out there that haven't been caught yet. Zodiac's never been caught. Nope. You know, and he used he used a gun. You yeah. know, a whole different thing. It's it's not as personal as people who use knives or whatever, you know. But he was a scary individual as well. We'll have to get to him at some point on the next California one because yeah. he, he's a very, very scary individual. But I don't think I have a particular one that I like more than others. But I do – I think I would have to say Zodiac probably fascinates me the most. Him or the Cleveland uh, Torso Butcher is also fascinating because that was – he was a uh, – his kills were very uh, disturbing, but also because his his time period and when he was killing coincided with one of the legends of U.S. government history, Elliot Ness. Oh, okay. Because that was Elliot Ness's last case, and it was never solved. Never and, solved. Yeah, and it drove Elliot Ness mad. So the fact that it was integrated with that and, you know, the Untouchables also, to me, is very interesting. Cool. Uh, so I like the Torso Killer, the Zodiac... And then probably, I guess that's probably the only two that I, I mean. I, I like I like to read about, hear about all of them. I like to listen about all of them. I like to read about all of them because they're fascinating. But if I had two, 
that I could pick that would be the ones that were the most fascinating to me would be those, the Zodiac and the Cleveland uh, Torso Butcher. Okay, So sweet. Uh, but that brings, it brings up a good point because we did recently did a spree killer. Yes. Uh, in Ronald Gene Simmons. Mm-hmm. And I think we briefly touched upon it in the episode, but... Uh, now we're doing a serial killer, and uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, the difference between the two is is quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So, spree killers, they are people who commit multiple murders um, at different locations with no cooling off period. Uh, and it's generally done in a short amount of time. Generally, it's no more than seven days in between killings, or yeah. between start and finish, I should say. So, like Ronald Gene Simmons, he did his over like a two, three day period. I think yeah, it was like yeah. two days. Yeah, because yeah, he he spent some time in the house with the bodies, and then he went off to the that law firm and killed people yeah. there. Whereas, uh, okay, so then there's like mass murders, like school shootings. Those those are things that are that take place in one location, and all in one go. Yep, like school shootings. Yeah, like the Las Vegas shooting, things like that, where it's yeah. in one location and it happens at one time, and that's it. And then for spree killers, generally. The killer knows the victims that they're killing. Yeah. Now, not always, of course, but like mass, like mass murders, such as like, uh, I mean, the biggest one of all, you know, uh, the Nazis or Pol yeah. or Pol Pot or even the, the school shootings. Generally, they know some of them, but not all of them. A lot of, a lot of workplace massacres and things right. like that too, yeah. post offices and stuff like that. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to touch on that and be insensitive. I'm not saying that at all. But the term going postal came from right, things of that from, nature. There were several post office shootings at yeah. one point. Oh, yeah. And now, you know, now it's, a, it's a phrase now. They'd go in there and shoot people up, you know, just yeah. indiscriminately. So, And uh, the, the cooling off period is the important part of separating the two because it's it speaks to very different motivations uh, of spree killers versus serial killers. Yeah. Because spree killers generally, you know, if they know the people or if, if something sets them off, one of the rare exceptions to this rule that I can think of again is Charles Whitman. He yeah. he had some sort of a brain injury, but the people that he killed from atop the tower, he didn't really know. He just randomly picked people. He just started popping people. Yeah. yeah. Which is kinda kinda like the individual from the Las Vegas shooting. Yeah. You know, he just picked people out in in the crowd at that at that uh concert and started picking people off. Yep. Serial killers, their motivation, as we mentioned, is different per per individual. And their cooling off period is different per individual, and so that's that is what makes them different from a spree killer. They, like for instance, the the one we're going to go over today, Stephen Pinnell, I believe he only had four, five victims, three of which he was officially charged for at first. But then you know, spree killers will have way more victims. Mass murders have way more victims. Yeah. Certain serial killers will, are, are called heavy hitters, and those are the people like the John Wayne Gacy's, the Dahmers yeah. that have thirty more. or forty dead. You know? Right. Yeah. Whereas he's uh, he's not a heavy hitter, but he's still a serial killer because of the definition of how he committed his crimes, when he committed his crimes. Yeah. The fact that he had different motivations from spree killers and, and stuff, absolutely, so. yeah. Like I said, they have an mo. Right. They it's like they're almost trying to challenge law enforcement to catch them. They find a apparently they find some kind of thrill in this and it's it's disgusting yeah you know but they it's like it's almost like a challenge to them and they get off on it and it's just bad news
But before we get to that, let's go ahead and start with the uh, weird news of the day. What have you got for us today, James? Oh, man. This is an interesting one I found. It is called Mystery Surrounding Dinosaur Footprints on a Cave Ceiling in Central Queensland Solved. Ceiling, huh? All right, let's let's hear it. Yeah. The mystery surrounding dinosaur footprints on a cave ceiling in central Queensland has been solved in an article published in Historical Biology after more than half a century. University of Queensland paleontologist Dr. Anthony Romilio discovered pieces to a decades-old puzzle in an unusual place, a cupboard under the stairs of a suburban Sydney home. The town of Mount Morgan near Rockhampton has hundreds of fossil footprints and has the highest dinosaur track diversity for the entire eastern half of Australia, Dr. Emilio said. Earlier examinations of the ceiling footprints suggested some very curious dinosaur behavior that a carnivorous theropod walked on all four legs. Ooh, interesting. As quoted, you do not assume T-Rex used its arms to walk, how could he? (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we didn't expect anyone of of its earlier predatory relatives of 200 million years ago did either researchers wanted to determine if this dinosaur did move using its feet and arms but found accessing research material was difficult to quote for a decade the mount morgan track site has been closed and the published 1950s photographs don't show all the five tracks dr romilio said However, Dr. Romilio had a chance meeting with local dentist Dr. Rosalind Dick, whose father found many dinosaur fossils over the years. To quote, I'm sure Anthony didn't believe me until I mentioned my father's name, Ross Staines, Ms. Dick said. Our father was a geologist and reported on the Mount Morgan Caves containing the dinosaur tracks in 1954. Besides his published account, he had high-resolution photographs and detailed notebooks, and my sisters and I had kept it all. We even had his dinosaur footprint plaster cast stored under my sister's Harry Potter cupboard in Sydney. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Dr. Romilio said the wealth and condition of dinosaur information archived by Ms. Dick and her sisters Heather Skinner and Janice Miller was amazing. To quote, I've digitized the analog photos and made a virtual 3D model of the dinosaur footprint and left the material back at the family's care, he said. In combination with our current understanding of dinosaurs, it told a pretty clear-cut story. The team firstly concluded that all five tracks were footprint impressions, that none were dinosaur handprints. Wow. Also, the splayed toes and moderately long middle digit of the footprints resembled two-legged herbivorous dinosaur tracks differing from prints made by theropods. Hmm. Rather than one dinosaur walking on four legs, it seems though we had got two dinosaurs for the price of one, both plant eaters that walked bipedally along the shore of an ancient lake. The tracks lining the cave ceiling were not made by dinosaurs hanging upside down. Instead, the dinosaurs walked on the lake sediment and these imprints were covered in sand. In the Mount Morgan Caves, the softer lake sediment eroded away and left the harder sandstone infills. So in other words, these were actually at a lake surface and somehow ended up... Solidifying? Solidifying and ending up on the roof of a cave. That's weird. Like it eroded out from underneath the lake bed or something like that. I guess the lake dried up or something, but that's where the story ends. Wow, cool. Uh... So that was interesting. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Weird news, but, you know, 
Could there be some cave walking dinosaurs? I mean, Probably, I man. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if they if they were, I mean, they most people believe that they were descended from from birds, but, but fossilized footprints from underneath. How cool yeah, is that? That's eroded, really neat. eroded from underneath. I know it has nothing to do with our current topic of the day, but I just thought that hey, story was kind of cool. That's pretty neat. Yeah, that's pretty great. So, yeah, I, I like that story. Good story, James. Hell yeah. All right, so today we're going to talk about Stephen Brian Pennell. It was the first and only serial killer for Delaware. The only one, and and all one. the hit in all the two hundred and forty plus new. years yes. of the United States history, only, only one, one serial killer in the old state of Delaware. That's right. Now, like I said, it is small, but that's unusual. It's, they still I'm have glad. one. They still have one though. So I'm glad. I mean, but geez, yeah. So uh, most of the information, or actually, I should say all the information today comes from three different articles. One from a Delaware Today article by Jeff Murdoch. One from a whyyy.org article by Nichelle Polston. And then the rest actually comes from court documents that I was able to find regarding the killings. Sweet. Yeah. So Delaware is, is generally considered a peaceful place to live. Now, it's known for several things. It's known as the first state of the union. Yep. It's known as having some of the fastest internet speeds in the U.S., which I'm kind of jealous of. <laughs> it's also known for having no sales tax. Ah. So, well, you know, those are all pretty good things. Why do I not live in Delaware? I know, right? But from 1987 to 1988, Delaware became home to something much more insidious. The state's first and only serial killer. The violent murder of Shelley Ellis on November 29, 1987, marked the beginning of the strange and terrible tale of Stephen Brian Pennell's reign as the state of Delaware's first convicted serial killer. All in all, five women would lose their lives to this killer. Three more bodies followed the first victim, and all had been brutally beaten and sadistically tortured. Now, see, that you're going to take their life, but you got to go and pull all that shit, too. You know, that just bugs the living hell out of me. The body of the fifth woman has never been found. Oh, Lord. So, they're, un- unlike other serial killers, uh, there's not much known about his early life. Yeah. Which is interesting because he was, once he was caught, he was incarcerated for a little bit of time before he was executed. However, from the time he was caught to the time he was executed, he refused to actually speak on any of the events. Wow. Yeah, he, he didn't want to talk about his killings. He didn't want to talk about any of it. And anytime he was actually, he did bring it up, he always did it in third person as if he was not actually the one that committed these crimes. And that is quite odd because there were a lot of these egomaniac serial killers who bragged on their exploits once they were caught because they're like, well, my life's over, so I might as well, I'm going to go out, you know, the lawman ain't going to get the best of me. You know? Right. I did what I did and I'm proud of it and right. blah, blah, blah. I'm going to brag on it. Now, now, there's not much known about his early life other than he seems to have had a normal childhood and come from a normal life, which is in contrast to other serial killers who usually come from some sort of abuse or neglect yeah. from, from one or both parents. Now, what is known is this. For a short time, he studied criminology at, for several semesters at the University of Delaware. He applied for numerous positions at the state police department of Delaware, though he was rejected for each one due to various reasons. Now, he ended up working as an electrician and settled in Newcastle, Delaware. 
During that time, he married his wife, Kathy, and they had, they had some kids. But as soon as he married her, he began to control every aspect of her life and take a dominant presence in the household. Yeah. Then, at some point, for some reason, on November 29th, 1987, while driving down Route 40, he decided to embark on his future career, if you want to call yeah. it that. And he came across victim number one. Victim number one is Shirley A. Ellis. Now, Ellis was an ex-prostitute who had dreamed of becoming a nurse. She got away from the prostitute life, and she distanced herself from streetwalking. And on November 29th, she was taking a Thanksgiving platter to an AIDS patient at Wilmington Hospital. She left around 6 to begin the 14-mile walk down Route 40 to the hospital. Carrying dinner? Carrying dinner. Wow. At about 9.25 p.m., two teenagers looking for a secluded makeout area came upon Ellis's murdered body. Police arrived at the scene. They found her partially clothed, wearing a pair of aqua blue pants. Now, she had duct strips of black duct tape in her hair, uh, which they believe most likely was wrapped around her mouth to keep her from screaming. Later on, the cause of death would be determined as strangulation and blunt force trauma to the head. They found some ligature marks, ligature strangulation marks on her neck, numerous skull lacerations from a hammer. Her hand and feet had been bound at one point, though when the teenagers found her, her legs were spread apart. So at some point, he took the, the tape off her legs, mm -hmm. as well as a pattern bruising to her left breast and nipple. However, there were no other signs of sexual assault found. So okay. there was no rape or anything just, like that. He just tied her up, stripped her, and beat the living hell out of her. Now, the authorities were stumped as to the motive for the killing because, as far as they know, she didn't have an ex-boyfriend or even an ex-husband. And according to state prosecutor Kathleen Jennings, for a time, they believed it was an interstate trucker. Because Route 40 was, you know, it's along, okay. that, along that route. It would be seven more months before Pinnell struck again. Again, the cooling off period. Yeah. You know, I mean, he had he was an electrician. He had, he had a job. He had a family. But seven months later, he finally decided he was ready to do it again. Around 11.30 p.m., Catherine DeMauro, then an active prostitute, was working along Route 40 when she was picked up for a trick. She would be found the next morning when workers at a construction site arrived to begin their shift. Now, the details of her death followed Ellis's exactly, including the lack of sexual assault. With two exceptions. One, she was found fully naked. Two, numerous carpet fibers were found on her body. Hmm. Blue fibers were found on her body and red on her face. Now, former Newcastle County Police Captain James Hendricks stated, quote, We felt that the same person was responsible for both murders. End quote. So, as a consequence of this second murder... The Delaware State Police and the Newcastle County Police Department formed a task force of over 100 officers and began undercover operations along Route 40. Uh, they began placing female officers undercover along Route 40, posing as prostitutes. Mm. Uh, the task force also collaborated with the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, headed up by John Douglas, who is the one that wrote the book Mindhunter, who which the Netflix series was based off of. Okay. And who is a man who interviewed all the infamous serial killers in order to start building profiles on how to figure out how to catch serial killers. He yeah. interviewed, you know, um, Charles Manson. He interviewed uh, Ed Kemper. He interviewed Son of Sam. He interviewed That's all crazy. of them. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, and he, he was one of the ones that helped catch Wayne Williams in Atlanta at that time as well. Though through their knowledge and experience of, with other serial killers, the FBI was able to make an amazing, accurate psychological profile of Delaware's serial killer. However, two months later, 
notice the time is shorter. Time is shorter. He's he's ramping up. Because, see, this is what I think about these guys. You know, once they do it once, they get that adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. Then they go home and they calm down. They figure out they got away with it. But they enjoyed that high. Right. So the time period between these killings starts to shorten, Shorten. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's probably a pretty accurate thought, yeah. You know, addiction. Right. Right. Exactly. It's a different kind of addiction. Oh, you know. Two months after Catherine DeMar's murder, on August 22nd, a prostitute named Margaret Finner went missing from along U.S. 13. A different route. Different route. But not too far from, again, small state. Small state. Yeah. She was witnessed getting into a blue van with no side window and rounded headlights driven by a white male. Her body would be found three months later near the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. Oh, boy. So, not only is he ramp up to a shorter time, but... He held on to the body longer. Yeah. Which means he took his time with it. However, because it was found three months later, now he may have actually dumped it sooner than that. Yeah. It's just that it was you found just don't three know. months later. It was found three months later. But yeah. because it was found three months later, it was in such a bad state of decay that the task force was unable to determine the cause of death. And her link to Pinnell was insufficient. And to this day, no one has actually been charged in her death. See, the thing is also, when I think about this, prostitutes were a lot of times targeted by these killers yes. because they don't have any deep family ties. Nobody's checking on them. Right. They're outcast, a lot of them, unfortunately. Uh, nobody's looking for them if That's they go exact, missing. I was just going to make that, that point. Yeah. That's also why these serial killers who did target prostitutes were able to get away with it for so long. Yes. Because nobody cared about prostitutes at the time they, they, they were a, they were an afterthought to society people just walked past them ignore them yeah they disappeared so what jeffrey dahmer yep uh a matter of fact the houston's very own serial killer dean coral who operated in the heights in the 70s yep also relied on on prostitutes and that's why he got away with it for so long as well exactly so yeah he picked easy targets and you know, like i said it's not somebody who people are going to be looking for right in September of 1988, the task force placed then-officer Renee Lano undercover on Route 40 to pose as a prostitute. On September 14th, she would end up coming face-to-face with the suspect. After walking up and down Route 40 all night and dealing with various individuals, including doctors, lawyers, school teachers, everybody's horny at that place, <laughs> at one point, there were a line of cars waiting to talk to her. She's Good Lord! Fresh fish. So, when... Finally, Pinnell's blue van drove by. Now, according to Lano, it drove by several times before finally stopping. Lano would come face to face with the killer and years later remarked, quote, His eyes were blank, cold, and there was no life to them. He was different than any other person who stopped for me, she recalls. It was hard to get into a conversation. He wasn't in the moment. He was looking right through me, end quote. Remembering the van that was witnessed prior to the last victim's disappearance, Lano acted quickly, quote, I pretended to be interested in his van. So I had him open the door and turn on the light. And when he turned the light on, my heart stopped because it was covered in blue carpet, she recalled. Oh, shit. She then pretended to be even further interested in the carpet and ran her hands through it, pulling up fibers as she did. Oh, smart. smart. Very smart. Yeah. Hell yeah. Now, while Lano conversed with the suspect, Captain Hendrick, who was not too far away, ran the plates of the van and found they came back to one Stephen Pinnell, an electrician with no criminal record. Now, Pinnell asked Lano several times to get into the van. Each time, she refused. She played it off, claiming she was either too tired from partying all night and just didn't want to do it. But at some point, uh, Pinnell got, seemed to have gotten suspicious, got back in his van, and drove off. Yeah. They had to send the fibers off to get tested. They had to t- uh, test them against the ones found on DeMauro to make sure that they matched. 
However, two days after her encounter with Pinnell, he struck again. Jeez. I'm two guessing freaking days. Because he went out that night looking for a victim, and didn't, he didn't find one. And he didn't get his fix. So he had, he had, yeah, he had so to I get had one. had to go get one, yep. 22-year-old Michelle Gordon, a Newcastle resident and known prostitute, disappeared. Her body would be found four days later on September 20th on the rocky banks of the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. Same damn place. Same, same drop-in location, yeah. Now, according to court documents, because her body had been submerged in water, no determination could be made as to the cause of death. However, injuries inflicted on her body were very similar to those found on Ellis's and DeMauro. Now, this time they had a break because there was a witness who saw Michelle Gordon get into Pinnell's blue van before her disappearance. Uh-huh. That would not be his last victim. Of course not. No, three days later, Aye. three days, he's ramping up. He would claim his last victim. Kathleen Meyer was seen accepting a ride from a blue van by an off-duty cop. Thankfully, the cop was aware of the van's connections to the murders, wrote down the plate number, and found it came back to Pinnell. Unfortunately, Pinnell seemed to learn from his previous mistakes, and her body has yet to be found. Oh, brother. Yeah. By this time, task force was watching Pinnell's every move, and watching him so closely that at one point, Lano actually sat next to him at a Moody Blues concert. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Now, how did he not recognize her, though? I would I would assume when she was dressed up as a prostitute, she was wearing a wig. Oh, yeah. Some heavy makeup. Very true. And different Disguise, clothing. Disguise, of yes, course. exactly. Because now, when you go undercover, of course, you're going to alter your appearance now, especially quite radically. If, you, of... if you're portraying a prostitute, you have to yeah. look like a prostitute. Yeah. You can't look true. like a school teacher. That right? is even, very true. Or even worse, you can't look like a cop. You've got to look like a hoe. Yeah. You know? You know. Yeah. So... The task force was able to obtain a search warrant to search Pinnell's van, and on September 30th, 1988, during a routine traffic stop, the cops immediately took him to the court to pay the traffic fine. Now, that's not an unheard of thing. Cops can do that. It's it's not done very often, but they can do that. But there was a reason. Exactly. They did that to keep him busy. While they was kept busy, the task force searched his van and found all the evidence they would ever need. Oh, boy. Blue carpet fibers. Red cloth fibers matching those of the victims, bloodstains and hair in the carpet. Oh boy. Duct tape. Yep. And what the police called a rape kit, which were pliers, whips, handcuffs, needles, knives, and restraints. Pliers? Which I'm assuming he used on the nipples. Yipe. After that, police issued an arrest warrant, and on November 29, 1988, one year after Shirley Ellis's death, Pinnell was arrested and charged in the deaths of Ellis, Gordon, and DeMauro. And the other two because of lack of evidence. Nobody on one and and no cause of death on the other. other. So they couldn't pin it on him. Not yet, no. The trial began on September 26, 1989 and would last over two months. It wouldn't be an easy trial for state prosecutor Kathleen Jennings, though, because Pinnell did not seem like a typical serial killer. He was married, had a good job, no criminal record, and even had kids. Now, does that ever matter, though? It does, because generally, with the exception of people like Ted Bundy, who was married, Mm -hmm. and later on, BTK, who was not only married, but had kids and was a deacon in a church. Oh, that's true. Before that, serial killers were usually loners, outsiders, social outcasts. Exactly. Some of them had criminal records. Some of them had juvie records. Yeah. You know, because it all starts somewhere. They had a history. Yep. So this, this he did not seem like a typical one because of these. Jennings recalled that he was a smart man, very well prepared, and had his story down. As part of its case in chief, regarding the serial aspect of the murders, the state was permitted to introduce evidence of the disappearance of a woman named Margaret Finner. 
The jury, however, did not know Fender's name or that she was, she was eventually found murdered. Now, Agent John Douglas, director of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit and the author of Mindhunter, testified as an expert in the area of serial murders. After reviewing the deaths of Ellis, DeMauro, and Gordon, he, he opined that they were all committed by the same person. The Pinnell case marked one other first. It was the first time DNA would be used in a criminal case. This is true because back then it was in its infancy. I remember when it started to come around, but it was very, very sloppy and yeah. very, very hard to, to, you know, as science has advanced, of course, it's become much, much easier. But man, back then it was I mean, tough. E- even as late as the uh, O.J. Simpson trial in the 90s, it was introduced, but it, the jury didn't understand it. Yeah. They had no idea what it meant. That's dinonucleic acid for you folks. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wizard. The prosecution <laughs> had experts come in to testify as to the DNA of the victims in the van. The science behind this was still new, and Jennings knew she was taking a big risk introducing it, but she felt it was very important. But it would turn out that the biggest detriment to Pinnell's case was Pinnell himself. Yep. The defense decided to have him testify. They hoped by having him testify, it would set the record straight about the blood and DNA found in the, in the van. It didn't. Pinnell claimed to have picked up DeMauro and paid her $25 for oral sex, then dropped her off and joked that she gave him $10 back. Hmm. This horrified the jury and made Pinnell seem cold and heartless to make a joke about a prostitute that ended up dead with uh, DNA found in his Yeah, I real mean, smart. Right. So on Thanksgiving Day of 1989, on Thanksgiving Day of 1989, a jury found Pinnell guilty of the murders of Ellis and DeMauro. Unfortunately, the jury was hung when it came to Michelle Gordon's death. Gordon was the one left on the bank, so they couldn't identify any marks, right? Yeah, she was the one who they weren't able to determine yeah. death. And by, you know, if you're acting, you're doing your job as a jury, if there is no evidence to tie it, you just can't do it. Can't do it. So, months later, and after several appeals, new evidence in the murders of Meyer and Gordon led to indictments against Pinnell. Pinnell asked to represent himself in the matters, and the judge granted it. Then he did something no one expected. He pled no contest to the charges and asked the court to sentence him to death. Damn. Even though he pled no contest and asked for death, he did not confess to the murders and never spoke of them again, even on the eve of his execution when everyone expected him to reveal the location of Meyer's body. Mm. Never did. So her body has never been found. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection on Halloween 1991. And on March 14th, 1992, after many appeals for a stay of execution from his wife, Kathy, Pinnell became the first man executed in Delaware in 46 years. Yep. I, uh, he never... lethal injection. And I'm sorry, it's too humane for animals like this. I'm sorry. It's just, I'm yeah. sorry. Sparky. Sparky. <laughs> Old Fire Sparky. Up Sparky. That's Fire right. him up. Fry him. He never revealed the location of Meyer's body, nor gave any interviews about his upbringing, his home life, or personal life. The FBI's Behavioral Science Unit even attempted to talk to him to gain insight, but he refused. To this day, he remains one of the most enigmatic serial killers in the country. Yeah, and that's... Yeah. Mm. So that is the story of Stephen Brian Pinnell, Delaware's first and only serial killer with a body count of five. 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 So they assume. So they assume. Now, have they ever... Because, uh, I mean, according to what we've seen here and what He's only been charged read, with four. Only been charged with four. Because and they then, couldn't find M- Myers' body. Yeah, but see... Eh. But because there was a witness who saw Myers getting into the van that matched... Yeah. Matter of fact, not only a witness, but it was an off-duty cop who ran the plates. So they can tie him 
to Myers before she went missing. However, because she couldn't, they couldn't find her body. And back in the 90s and the 80s, late 80s, 90s, they probably didn't have her DNA profile on record. Mm-hmm. So even if they found her DNA in the van, there's nothing to match it to. Nope. They can't match it to. Now, and because she's a prostitute, now they probably could have matched it to something. If she, if she had some place to live, if she had something in her house, they probably could have matched it to that. But again, as you mentioned, it was in an, its infancy. And here is, a, and here is an interesting point because when you just said that prostitute and DNA evidence, if a woman's a prostitute, I'm sorry, she has several tricks in one evening. She doesn't just have sex with one person. So how, so murdering a prostitute, if you're going to kill somebody and they're going to try to rely on DNA evidence, he could be like. Psh. It could be any one of these guys. Right, right. Now, you know, I mean, I mean, that's, it, that may sound like a uh, a simplified version, but you know what I mean? Yeah. You know. But, he, I mean, at that point, I mean, I, I would I would beg to argue that she would have more than maybe five or six tricks in a night. Yeah. So, you could bring in five or six people and if, if you were able to and match. And figure out somebody. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you were able this to match true. the DNA to a, some, to a person, you could bring them in and eliminate them one by one. Yeah. Problem is. Of the six, you might identify four, but not the other two. Yeah. So at that point, you rely upon witnesses. Uh, may, at this at this time and day, maybe cameras uh, catching something, catching her uh, getting to a certain car. Uh, um, other prostitutes who might have seen the car could get a plate or something. So that's what yeah. you're relying on at that point. I guess so. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. So that is the story of of uh, Delaware's uh, serial killer. What a bastard. Man, he... I'm sorry. It's crazy, though, because bastard. He, he wasn't, like... Because we don't know anything about him, we have no idea what his mental state was. I mean, he, he obviously had some sort of some sort of mental issues in the fact that he tortured these women. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't have sex with them. He didn't rape them, but he tortured them. But he was married. He had kids. Yeah. Had a job. No criminal record. Now, we don't know what he was like on the job. Uh, according to his wife, he was a bit dominant. Yeah, a little controlling and stuff like that. We don't know anything about about his how he was as a father from the kids because they haven't spoken. But there's probably a good chance that he had some of the traits of serial killers as far as like mental mental yeah. traits. But we don't know because he never spoke to anybody. Well, and then again, they've also diagnosed many more mental disorders Since then. in the past decades. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, bipolarism, stuff like that. Yeah. I didn't even remember hearing a term bipolar back in the 80s, if you want to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And he could just be flipping a switch. Multiple personality disorder. God knows what. Yeah, we'll never know. You know, if he was a loving family man, and then he'd go out and flip a switch and be able to take a hammer to some defenseless woman and enjoy torturing her and then throwing her in a you know a damn river somewhere something definitely uh something yeah. something I mean, a screw loose yeah he, have, yeah he obviously had a screw loose as most of them do but i don't know man. rough yeah so all right james well um why don't you tell them where they can find us on social media and where they can find the podcast absolutely yeah they can find us on the fourthhand.com network and we encourage you to go there our other project what the suck is also on there and there are also several other great shows a ton of shows they are fantastic shows great people go there check it out uh you can reach you can find us on social media we are on facebook of course the big evil and then we are also on Instagram under now, State of Fear. I do want to say real quick before you continue, um, if you've listened to the show at this point, you notice that at the end of each episode, we have a personal encounter that's sent in to us by a listener. Yes. Uh, if you have a personal encounter that you want to have on the show, 
send it in to us in an audio format, preferably MP3. You can make it anywhere between three to five, uh, three to ten minutes. Um, if it has to go longer, that's fine. But the the preferable time is three three to ten minutes because that's a good amount of time. Because normally, uh, you would just email it into us, and yes. I don't know. Like we just had somebody who sent us in something that was 11 minutes long and it went through. But anything longer than that, you're risking it not being able to email to us. But yeah. email it to us at stateofyourpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Um, it doesn't matter what state it is. It doesn't matter if you lived in it, in the state when you had the incident or experience, or if you just were visiting when you had the experience. Yeah, the experiences will go on. They will go on the episode that pertains to the specific state. Correct. But, you know. You, you, don't, you don't have to live there. As long as yeah. you, if you were visiting and you had it in that state. Send us the experience in an audio format. Just make sure you include your name, where it was, and when it was, and then tell the story, and we'll put it on. All right, James. Well, until uh, next time, uh, it was a lot of fun. Absolutely. It's great learning about like this I said, stuff. I, I, I don't like these serial killer types, but learning about it is pretty oh, they, uh, it's, they it's fascinate interesting. They the shit out of me, dude. I, I hadn't heard of Stephen Pinnell. Yeah. Um, so it was fascinating to get into, to read about him, learn, learn about, about somebody him. somebody you, you never even never heard, heard of. About, yeah. Yep. So until next time, we'll see you guys later. You bet. Take care, y'all. Oh, and don't forget to stay tuned for the personal encounter stories coming up right now. My name is Josh Hitchens. I am 34 years old. I was born and grew up in Sussex County, Delaware, also known as Slower Lower Delaware, which is pretty accurate. The thing you have to realize about the Southern Delaware is that it is flat. There are almost no hills, so you can see the sky forever, with fields full of crops everywhere you go, and farms that have existed for well over a hundred years in some cases. There is so much history in southern Delaware. If you love nature, it is an incredibly beautiful place to live. And at night, you can see all the stars, and it's so quiet. It's still very rural, so the woods are deep and never far away. I grew up in a haunted house, but that's a story for another time. The first time I saw a ghost outside of the house I lived in is the tale I'm going to tell. I spent the weekends with my grandparents a lot when I was growing up. They lived in a little town in southern Delaware, not far from the ocean. It was a simple two-story house with a big backyard. I remember the trees being huge. My grandmother kept a garden, and I loved helping her work on it. There was a big metal barrel near the back of the yard where my grandfather burned garbage and dead leaves back when you could still do that. I used to watch the flame shoot up into the sky as he poked the burning stuff with a stick, and sometimes he would spit his chewing tobacco into the fire, which even then I thought was pretty gross. I have so many wonderful memories of my grandparents' house. But there is one memory I try not to think about, because it still scares me. Behind the backyard of my grandparents' house was the old woods. Some of the trees must have been forty or fifty feet tall. It was always so dark in there. 
Even in the daytime, you couldn't see much farther than the first few rows of trees. It was kind of creepy, because when you looked at it for any length of time, it felt like there was something there in the woods, waiting and watching. My grandparents had told me I was never allowed to go into the woods, not ever. They said it was dangerous in there, too easy to get lost, and there were snakes and poison ivy and big spiders and who knows what else. They didn't need to warn me. I was scared of the woods anyway. It's hard to remember, but I think I was about eight years old when I first actually saw the thing that was watching in the woods. And at first, I didn't know what I was seeing, because it didn't make sense. It was a little man, dressed in a black suit with a white shirt and black tie. He was standing at the very edge of the woods. He couldn't have been more than four feet tall. His face was very pale, but everything else about him was black his hair, his clothes, his eyes. But the thing I remember most vividly was his mouth. His lips were stretched in a smile that seemed almost too wide for his face, and he would motion with his right arm for me to come over to him. I would stand there, frozen. He couldn't be real but he was standing right there, and I knew he wanted me to go with him into the woods. At first, whenever I saw him, I would run back into the house. I never said a word about it. It got so I would see him every time I went into the backyard. He was always standing in the same spot at the edge of the woods, always smiling, always beckoning for me. And whenever my grandmother or my grandfather came outside, he would suddenly just not be there. One day I saw him, and he talked to me, and he said, Come play with me. I stood there looking at him as he kept motioning me to come closer. I was so scared. But I was also tired of being scared. Maybe if I did what he wanted, he would go away and I wouldn't see him anymore. Besides, the house was right there and I knew I could run away fast if I had to. So I walked over to him, to the edge of the woods. He stayed completely still, smiling. And I said, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. I really said that. And he said, But I'm not a stranger. I've been here a long, long time. Come play with me. He turned and started walking into the woods, and I followed him. Almost as soon as I stepped into the forest, it was like clouds blocking the sun. It became very, very dark. 
He led me to a tree about fifty feet into the woods. It was enormous, with big twisted branches that hung down low and roots like claws digging into the earth. He stopped and turned around to face me, and it seemed like his smile was even bigger, almost the whole of his face. And he said, This is where I brought all the kids to play. Now they live down here. He pointed down at the earth, the spots in between the roots of the big tree. That's a secret. No one else knows. Then he put a finger in front of his mouth. Even after I put them down there, I could still play with them for a long, long time. Then he looked up at the big branches above us. I'm up there now. You can see me if you look. And then he wasn't there. I was all alone in the woods by that tree. But I felt something up above me, something on the tree branch right above my head. I didn't want to look and see whatever it was. And I heard his voice coming from not far above my head. Come play with me. Then I felt hands suddenly touch my shoulders, and I screamed. The hands spun me around, and it was my grandfather asking me what the hell I was doing in the woods. He dragged me back into the house, and he and my grandmother sat me down. I told them everything that happened, everything I'd seen. They were very quiet, and then my grandmother started talking. Mr. Gordon lived in the house next door. He was a little person. He worked in the funeral parlor, they called him doing things to some of the kids. He killed himself. He hanged himself by one of the big trees in the woods. But you can't have seen him. He died back in 1964. My grandparents eventually sold the house and moved. The people who bought the house turned it into some kind of office, but the woods are still there. And I wonder if anyone still sees him, especially the children. I bet they do. Just like I imagine, I think, there are some graves of children in the neighborhood cemetery that are actually empty that their bodies are really buried between the roots of that tree in the old, dark woods. I know that because Mr. Gordon told me so. Shh. My name is Josh Hitchens. And I wrote about this and my other personal paranormal experiences in a one-man play I've performed called Ghost Stories. 
If you want to learn more about me, my website is joshhitchens.weebly.com. I also write and narrate a podcast of my own called Going Dark Theater, which tells in-depth tales of haunted places, unsolved mysteries, and horrific history. You can listen to the Going Dark Theater podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and it is hosted at goingdarktheater.podbean.com. Thank you to the hosts of the State of Fear podcast for allowing me to share my story. Pleasant dreams.